Hey there, Bill. How are you doing today? Robin, it is a cool and crisp day north of the 40th parallel, but we're doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Over here in the jolly UK, we're steaming towards winter. The first few flakes of snow has fallen and everybody starts to panic. But onwards to a bright and crisp December. Now, Absolutely. as we move forward, we can't ignore what has already happened in the past. So let's cover our first topic and let's talk about Killnet. Ooh, scary. Tell us about the Killnet group. Tell us about the gang. You bet. Super scary name. Uh, very interesting group that we are dealing with here. So Killnet self-identifies as a group of Russian hackers. We first saw them roughly around the January 2022 timeframe. Robin, when they originally surfaced, they fancied themselves to be hackers for hire. They would sell their services, particularly around DDoS or distributed denial of service. Now, a very interesting thing happened with them as things began to unfold with the conflict in uh, Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia. They really transformed themselves into a more patriotic styled group supporting Russia and the endeavors that that Russia was trying to uh, engage upon. And this loosely organized collective, often they collaborate over Telegram, uh, really began to try to push an agenda that was in line with some of the political aims. Ah, the, the joy of hacktivists, people who are trying to push an agenda with their attacks instead of just doing it for the love of the attack itself. <laughs> I mean, I, I personally, I was looking on some unscrupulous websites, you know, know your enemy, and I saw some hackers for hire going for, say, 50 bucks for a small scale DDoS attack. And considering how wide somebody can have a botnet spread, that is quite scary. I know we've talked in the past as phishing as a service, we talked about uh, caffeine and other tools, but what can we do to prevent Killnet from being a problem? So Killnet loves to do distributed denial of service attacks and some of the analysts within the industry have looked at these attacks as being rather primitive. Now, primitive or not, distributed denial of service can indeed be disruptive. In this particular case, we've been able to identify the pattern that's used. Uh, often the attacks indeed are very basic in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. They will attempt to brute force very standard protocols such as FTP or Secure Shell, even HTTP and, and Secure HTTP, utilizing these distributed denial of service attacks. Now, as far as protecting against that, there's a lot of conversation around that, Robin, because when you're trying to protect against distributed denial of service attacks, you really need to look at it from two key perspectives. One is protecting DDoS attacks against applications, and one is protecting against DDoS attacks on infrastructure. In the case of applications, we can certainly utilize available technologies such as content delivery networks, when we do talk about infrastructure attacks, though, uh, there are some things that we're able to do to mitigate those attacks, such as doing rate control or essentially being able to uh, hide that infrastructure behind either additional bandwidth or in the case of Cato Networks, because of the nature of our backbone, the very architecture of it is a, a protecting factor against these distributed denial of service attacks. 
primitive isn't a bad thing. You say DDoS are primitive attacks, primitive tools. I'm in the UK. We're not allowed guns here. I'm allowed rocks. If I was to chase you with a rock, that primitive attack, you would still be kind of a little worried, a little scared. I would be equally worried, yes. yes. And, and while you're running away from the rocks, who else knows what's happening? You know, sometimes DDoS attacks are used as a distraction mechanism, or it can That's impact right. your overall business continuity flow. So here at Cato, we, as you've mentioned, we have multiple anti-DDoS procedures against our infrastructure. We have ways of mitigating surface attacks and attack vectors and employing that zero-trust approach. But if you're not a Cato customer, if you don't have that layer of protection against the service infrastructure, how can I prevent these rogue activists, these rogue action groups who want to do people harm from doing harm? You know, that's a, a very fascinating subject to contemplate because <laughs> without this kind of architecture, this resilient architecture that gets provided, a lot of times that really boils down to the old traditional legacy hardware. And one of the most difficult aspects of that is making sure that that hardware can scale to handle those attacks. We talked about a, a recent attack that came via Mirai not too long ago, and cloud delivery network provider Cloudflare indicated that it was one of the largest that they've seen in history. It so as we consider these things and protecting private cloud infrastructure in particular, we really need to bear in mind that the legacy approaches are necessarily going to be costly. They can be a little bit difficult to implement, and it's still no guarantee against the sheer scale that these distributed denial of service attacks can take on. Now, I've talked to some people and so, some of my friends who are app architects and web designers, and they, they actually did themselves a lot of harm when trying to protect against DDoS attacks. They blocked all bots from accessing websites. They're an e-commerce company, not going to say the name here. But once they started blocking all bots, they actually found that things like Google AdWords, McAfee SafeScan, and other tools weren't actually working because they just flat out blocked everything. So how can you still gain give access to the right bots while protecting against the wrong bots? It really comes down to not painting with a broad brush, Robin. We need to be very strategic in the way that we uh, attempt to protect against these distributed denial of service attacks because we do know the benefit of automation, particularly when you are utilizing a commerce website and, and want to have some of that visibility that comes about from some of these automated systems that really can promote what you're trying to do. So uh, resiliency, the ability to be fairly granular in your controls and yet still be able to detect that traffic and identify when rates are getting too high, it's abnormal, and we need to necessarily sinkhole it or block it. I like, like the term block it. You know, Cato, we're application aware. We have fantastic intrusion prevention systems. So theoretically, if you were seeing a nation state attack, quite quickly within our IPS, you can just create a geoblock. You can block an entire country from ingress or egress, which might not fully resolve the problem, as we all know botnets decide to sprawl globally. But if you can mitigate even 10% of the attack surface, you have caused yourself, well, you've prevented yourself from having pain, <laughs> which is a nice extra way. And that's the granularity. That's the customized controls, Robin, and being able to do that from one spot and, and to set that policy uh, from that single location and be able to make that apply to uh, whatever your business is trying to accomplish. You, you can't underestimate the value of that. Indeed. Killnet and other heroes for hire or hacktivists for hire. You know, it's very 
the, the understanding, the perception. Some people see themselves heroes, some as hacktivists. That, that's a philosophical discussion I think an entire episode could be dedicated to. Sure. But if we can mitigate that vulnerability, if you can make life more controlled and secure and have visibility and consistency and transparency of service to your end users if you're under attack, well, Kato can kind of provide all of that. But anyway, that's that's enough talking about the, the negatives of DDoS. Let's move over to some other cyber fun. Let's talk about the good old things of Jolly London and the National Security Cyber Center. I forgot. NSC. That's a mouthful, right? <laughs> uh, tripping over my words today. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So the NCSC, and, and this is one that can be confused, Robin, because this is not the first time we've seen this acronym. We, we love acronyms in, in cybersecurity, of course, but we are referring specifically to the NCSC that's based in the UK. That's the National Cybersecurity Center. Uh, it's fascinating the role that the NCSC has taken in that we have we've received word that they are beginning to scan any UK hosted internet exposed devices to collect information about the vulnerabilities that exist. So we're really taking a broad approach in the United Kingdom to identify where those vulnerabilities may exist in those devices that happen to face outward. And what they're doing is they're tracking those vulnerabilities making certain to inform those who own those assets and even tracking remediation as uh, as they share that data that's exciting but also a little scary a little orwellian to a point i, I remember is. one of the u.s organizations got well some negative press a few years back when it comes to some fiber splitters and trying to do very very similar so do you think we should be concerned about this you know there is this fine line between uh, freedom of information and speech and also trying to ensure that we we have the security and and you're right it, it does raise some privacy concerns maybe the fact that the ncsc is identifying the vulnerabilities and then giving away nmap scripts will soothe some of the concerns i i don't know if that's necessarily the case it, it certainly can be viewed as helpful but uh, we've gotten assurance from the NCSC that not only are, are their, their efforts not nefarious, but they do provide an option for uh, organizations to opt out of those scans. So certainly trying to mitigate any of the concerns of, uh, of an Orwellian nature and, and trying to really increase the security posture on, on a broad scale for uh for those who who may happen to uh, maintain that presence that that faces the internet mm -hmm. the ns i find it really hard to say this acronym the center <laughs> provide yes. really good accreditation i know cyber essentials plus is one of the requirements to be on many frameworks here in the uk and i know right. kato aligns very closely with this and we have white papers showing how you can be cyber essentials aligned if anybody's sure. listening and want it reach out to us that we can provide but what can Cato do regarding this scanning? What can we do to identify issues and problems? And how can we help the, the greater good, as it would be? Let, yeah, let's take a step back on that question, Robin, because <laughs> the, the, the scope of that question is actually really broad. And if you don't have an understanding of what the Cyber Essential Scheme is, 
that may be a little bit difficult to answer, certainly for your own organization. So really five elements make up that, that cyber essential scheme. One is effective firewalling. Another is secure configurations. Uh, a third would be user access control. The fourth element is effective malware protection. And then finally, uh, security update management that, that really kind of rounds out the, the cyber essential scheme. As you mentioned, we do provide white papers that can uh, help Cato Networks customers understand the ways that, that they can utilize the solution to address each of those areas. What to me is, is the most exciting about it is that because we are a cloud-based solution, we're able to, to again, address all of those with, with a unified solution that also brings that scalability that, that can help with not only the compliance, but to do that on a very broad basis and be able to identify where there may be potential issues that, that we can help to mitigate. So as you said, we, we, I, I think we have an excellent uh, white paper that, that kind of takes a question and answer format that can really help uh, identify the ways that you can utilize the Cato Network solution to address each of those five areas. Great to know. Great to know. We're here to help not just protect and secure your network, but to ensure you meet other frameworks. That's good That's to know. Right. So let's let's get more malicious. Let's start talking <laughs> about PyPy. Let's get bug fighting. Let's get wasps and pythons attacking each other. Right. What is this? Yes. So for those who aren't familiar, number one, Python is a very broadly used interpreted uh, programming language, if you will. I, I use the word language loosely. But PyPy is actually, a, a, it's the Python package index. So one of the great aspects about Python is the ability to import packages of, of pre-built code that can be utilized uh, in, in a developer's work. The difficulty is that sometimes we don't do the diligence on those packages that we may happen to import. And what was identified was that, I, I believe the number was 29. There were 29 packages that were identified in the, the Python package index that were actually uh, contained malicious import statements that would bring in, it would, it would import, it would download the wasp stealer, uh, a nasty little piece of malware. And it would be done unbeknownst to the developers who happen to import one of those, uh, again, I think 29 packages. So what happened once the wasp stealer was on the code or on the machine? Yeah, so wasp stealer is a well-known piece of malware. What it does is it's essentially a scraper, Robin. It tries to locate files uh, or sometimes cookies or passwords and attempts to exfiltrate those to the malicious actor. So again, unknown to the developer, they may create this code and then where wherever that, that code is running, suddenly they would find that the data is, is being taken out of the organization. Okay, so is this using a standard kind of command and control approach or is it using something more exotic? Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't call it anything exotic at all. It, it, it really is utilizing a, a standard exfiltration URL, for example. It's basically a Trojan uh, in, in terms of malware classification. So nothing super fancy or super exotic, but the, the, the hidden nature of it, the, the, the nefarious way that it gets pulled down onto the system by unsuspecting developers, that's what makes it uh, quite fascinating in terms of, of the approach. You, you almost might call it a, maybe even a supply chain type issue. 
And this is just yet another reason you shouldn't copy and paste code from Stack Overflow, unless you know everything it does. That's right. That's right. Yep. Check before you do it. Check. Yeah. It feels like 40% of a developer's time is Googling the problem. The rest of the time is copy and pasting and then trying to do exception handling. And I'm not it's saying true. that from it's personal true. experience at all. Uh... Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, Robin, so, you know, in, in the development world, we we always talk about this concept of of shift left, right? In in the, the CI C D framework and, and agile development, we always try to shift security left which uh, it, it, that's an endeavor in itself. And, and it, it does involve being much more savvy about the ways that we do development. The good news is though, if it slips through the cracks and it happens to be there, if you have a robust next generation anti-malware solution, you are going to catch it. Now, at that point, you're obviously going to have to mitigate or compensate. Uh, it, it's gotten in there, but at least we're able to catch it. We're able to eliminate it before it can it can execute on any of its malicious payload. Okay, that makes sense. Supply chain attacks are dangerous. There's multiple steps to get there, so it's a lot harder than just identifying the transaction at a. That's right. Well, identifying a north south type transaction. So exactly. imagine I'm an existing customer, or I'm somebody who's found this wonderful piece of code. I've accidentally imported the libraries. What happens next? I'm protected behind your, Kato. Your next generation anti-malware has just simply got to catch it, and, and it will. Uh, again, this is well known. So from a signature perspective, caught very quickly. We've said it before on prior episodes, though, Robin, the creativity of threat actors is endless. So it's very important that it be a next generation anti-malware. I know that term gets overused a lot. Let's make sure we describe it. It is taking a machine learning approach based upon heuristics that identifies behavior that tells us something just isn't right here. We're able to stop it and obviously make changes to the code to ensure that that's eliminated from the environment. That sounds fantastic. And in the event we start identifying this type of malicious traffic, what happens? How do we identify the host? How do we take actions to mitigate the, the overall problem? We know there's a block. What next? So we, it, it's not just blocking it, right? It, it's actually doing that elimination. And there are several strategies within development to be able to do that. Where this does become a little bit more complex is when you do begin to talk about that east-west traffic. But uh, once more, it's a question of data in motion as well as data at rest. Uh, ensuring that your device posture is being checked, that that, that monitoring is taking place and that we can ensure that even if this does happen inadvertently, we know exactly where it's taking place. We can segment that off necessarily while we perform the, the cleaning or the mitigation as it were, and, and restore things to a period of operating as we would expect. Wonderful. And if in the, well, if this exploit gets more smart and the creativity of the threat actor gets even better, we also have right. data loss prevention here at Cato as well just to ensure that your plain text data isn't exfiltrated the wrong way, if you wanted to start. And that's the key, Robin. It, it, it really depends upon sophistication. You're absolutely right. Uh, very effective data loss prevention tools, including data loss prevention that not only is based upon known standards and signatures, but, but data loss prevention that can be customized. Uh, for example, a lot of times when we talk about data loss prevention, we talk about being able to 
create our own regular expressions, for example, to identify potentially lost information. Uh, we certainly have that capability to do that. Um, and naturally inspecting encrypted traffic, that's also going to be an important part of this discussion. Absolutely. Security, it, it's a cake. You don't just have one thing. It has to have a blend of different ingredients all together to really give you that right. full satisfaction and protection. Or maybe a I'm just... blend, yes. 100%. Yes, I've given up sugar and i'm just craving cake all the time oh but hey, hey, hey. <laughs> i've noticed you're using that a lot robin <laughs> yeah kind of feeling it isn't it so when we come um, about to talk about health and well-being we can't yes. forget the red cross so of course tell us about the digital red cross tell us how humanity can be trusted or how we should trust in humanity you know i i don't know if we've stressed humanity enough in this robin so maybe this makes a lot of <laughs> sense to talk about but uh a, a fascinating uh, proposal by the International Committee of the Red Cross is they're proposing to put what is essentially a, a digital marker on any of those systems that may be utilized for for medical purposes or or even for humanitarian purposes. And, and we can kind of think of this in in physical world terms, right? When when the unfortunate act of war happens, we know that in that that field of battle, a lot of times you will see uh, it, it could be uh, medical equipment that's marked with the Red Cross. And the understanding uh, based upon the Geneva Conventions is that those are items that they really shouldn't be attacked because they are they're being done for humanitarian or or, or medical purposes to rescue uh, perhaps that man who's had a little bit too much cake, if you will. Uh, but but again, this really appeals to the human aspect of uh, of, of the, the would-be threat actor or or the hacker, right? If they, the proposal is that if they see this, they will understand that that's something that maybe you shouldn't attack. It's something that is doing humanitarian work, and it really does rely upon the the humanity in in the equation here. Uh, certainly, very interesting proposal that that they're putting out there. I firmly believe there should be honor amongst thieves but other people not so much so presuming somebody breaches this suggestion what are the implications what are the consequences or is it still far too early to say again this is really being governed by human morality and we can't make assumptions on that uh, just from an opinionation uh I think it's an interesting idea, uh, and, and, and certainly uh, I, I almost see it as akin, and I hate to oversimplify this, but it, it is akin to putting the sign out in front of your house that says that you have a, an, an alarm system installed. The, the, the hope is that it deters uh, that 80% that, that would say, you know, we're, we're just not going to fight with that. Same kind of thing from a humanitarian standpoint. But we, we do have to understand that that really is not a, a full-on uh, protection or, or mitigation strategy. There, there's an old saying that says, trust, but verify. And I think in this case, you really do still need to look at things from a zero trust uh, perspective. We, we talked about that last episode, Robin. I love what you said in that last episode that, that zero trust for you is not something that's simply technological but it's, it's, it's a, an approach, a philosophy that, that you carry through your life. Uh, it, it, it may seem unfortunate that we need to do that, but again, trust, but verify, 
very important. A good zero trust framework, I, I think, is always going to be key to back up that warning sign that may be sitting out in front of the, the assets. Absolutely. It's a lifestyle. Heck, I even extend the zero trust to just sharing on LinkedIn, for example, just personal privacy. I see people sure. saying, hey, I'm here with this customer, here with that customer. And in my head, I'm just thinking, oh, so you're telling me your house is unguarded, hey? Let's use a little <laughs> right. bit of uh, open source intelligence. Let's find out where you That's live. Right. Ah, here we go. <laughs> so right. all of that, you know, trust and verify. But sadly, I can't, I don't have enough faith in humanity to believe that people will be so secure. So motivation. If, yeah. there's always motivation. And when it comes to healthcare providers, these are the people who are very uh, likely to have large data breaches with costly financial implications. So if this comes out and people or the majority of threat actors decide, no, we're going to leave these Red Cross, we're going to leave these healthcare providers alone, what effectively this would do is turn those healthcare providers into a false sense of security. So they might right. start dropping their overall shields and thinking, oh, no, we don't have to invest in this. We're safe until somebody enterprising comes along and uh, causes a lot of damage. So yeah, good you know, idea. Robin, it's scary. I, I love the, the, the tack that you're taking here, because uh, if if we were to put ourselves in the seats of, of a threat actor, it's it would be very uh, easy to begin to scrape for anything that is displaying that digital badge, knowing that you might have a high value target. Similar to the, the example that I gave earlier, if I'm listing that I have my uh, alarm system installed by putting their, the brand sign out in front of the house, in effect, I'm giving the threat actor the ability to go back and research and identify what the vulnerabilities are before they've even tried. Uh, they're able to do that offline. So it's a really great point that you're making here. Uh, I, I do think it's, it's, it is worth consideration, but we do need to think about all angles of this and, and it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see where this goes. Indeed, indeed. If it does take off, it'll be a good precedence for the future. Once again, we sure. have to rely on people and people are awful, <laughs> terrible things that computers Organic do what you tell them messy. to do. <laughs> Organic <laughs> is messy. So talking about messy, let's talk about yes. the hell required from patching. So yeah. open SSH, the bane of yes. anybody doing key management, that terrible CLI tool. What's what's been happening in the world of open SSL? Oh my goodness. So we sounded the alarms on uh, on a couple of vulnerabilities that were found within OpenSSL. And rightfully so, Robin. OpenSSL is uh, it's prolific to say the least. Utilized so much uh, for, well, I mean, even for very basic things such as, as transport layer security or TLS. That's that piece for those that aren't familiar that, that is really responsible for securing things like, oh, I don't know, internet transactions. Uh, very, very broad, also used within applications. This is a cryptographic uh, solution that, that is just, it's so broadly used. And in this particular case, there were, uh, it, originally it was a vulnerability that was discovered. Eventually it was, it was split into two CVEs. Uh, and for those who, who don't know what a, a CVE is, it's a, uh, CVE stands for Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures. Uh, you can actually find a list of those on cve.org. But these these uh, vulnerabilities, as it came out, were were discovered in OpenSSL, particularly in version three and later. So it was version three, the baseline, all the way up to version 3.0.6. 
And of course, because of its its broad use, they they really sounded the alarm bells because in this particular case, this had to do with the uh, X.509 certificates. Again, for the layman, that that's the the certificates that are typically exchanged for encryption uh, during, for example, web transactions. So we could use a a very specifically crafted email address and then cause what's known as a buffer overflow. So it, it would cause uh, basically access to areas of the memory buffer that would potentially allow you to either crash the the application or or the the server or even maybe potentially execute remote code on that. So this to me has big red flag flags, red flags, <laughs> alarms, people screaming, and it feels right. like a log4j type incident again. Something very important, something used in a myriad of applications, and something that can cause a big lot of pain if you don't upgrade the latest version. Mm. So how can you identify what servers, what applications are using vulnerable open SSL code? Well, your, your insight is, is spot on as always, Robin. So you, you used log4j as the example. Really, this has been characterized as the the largest vulnerability in OpenSSL since the, the 2014 Heartbleed incident. So uh, any variety of tools are, are able to, to scan and, and see if you have those present within your, <clears throat> excuse me, within your applications, for example. Uh, also, if you are, you, you happen to be utilizing it for that secure encryption that, that takes place over the web. And from a mitigation standpoint, Robin, uh, not a long time ago, I think it might have been five or six days ago, uh, OpenSSL released version 3.0.7, and you are able to utilize that, and, and that will um, mitigate the, the vulnerability that exists. It's a lot of work, though. <laughs> it certainly is. If I'm, if I'm working in banking, if I'm wor well, working in finance, if I have commerce, if I have application to application communications, upgrading right. an open SSL version is big right. risk because right. five minutes of downtime might lead to five to $10 million of lost revenue. Business right. continuity is key. So That's right. what should Cato customers do? So this really comes along the lines of some things that we've discussed in prior episodes when we talk about, for example, organizations that are still using Windows XP for applications that are critical to their business. And the, the fact that those vulnerabilities aren't even being patched anymore, right? It's considered end of life. A true converged SASE solution, such as what we offer at Cato Networks can help to mitigate that because what we essentially do is establish a secure software-defined perimeter. So although you may have application-to-application -application traffic that may have this level of code that has these vulnerabilities, that protection that we define as a software-defined perimeter, whether it is a full SASE solution or you're simply looking at our converged SSE stack, it still provides that protection and, and gives you that time to be able to mitigate this because you're right, this could take a while to to uh, to address and and we may not even find everything despite the tools that might be available to uh, to identify where that exists. Okay, so we're blocking at the at the edge of the WAN, the middle mile across the Cato backbone. So the vulnerability is still there in the packages, yeah. but we're preventing people from getting to the vulnerability. 
That's exactly right. And even with east-west traffic, Robin, I mean, uh, that, that's so important. We cannot forget uh, that, that, that it's, it's very important to monitor that traffic and, and block that as well if we see those vulnerabilities. So that, you know, the, the, the $64,000 question as the, as the proverbial saying goes is, are Cato Networks customers protected? Uh, that question was being asked very loudly when these vulnerabilities came to light. The answer is and, and will continue to be a resounding yes. Uh, at no point were, were our, our customers exposed. Uh, that continues to be so. Nevertheless, our, our threat researchers do, uh, they're, they're constantly monitoring and that's the advantage of uh, a service such as this where you've got Intel that's constantly working in the background for you. Okay, so it seems like we're protecting our customers from at the edge. We're preventing any of the malicious hackers getting into the network, but people should still be patching. They should still be identifying which compromised hosts have been identified through the the Cato platform through our events management which will allow you to then not just scrabble around in the dark looking for the right things but actually being able to identify which servers or applications are vulnerable and which ones are being actively externally exploited just like we did with log4j we can use the events we can identify the cve and quite easily and quite quickly provide a report of what you need to action and do so that's right the world of open SSL is scary, but luckily, Cato helps you sleep a bit better at night. <laughs> We're good to go. We're good to go. Well, in that case, thank you for your time today, Bill. It was very exciting, very good. And until next time, I hope you have a great day. Robin, be well. Good talking with you.